Hi everyone, I'm Luke. Uh, I'm going to be reading Isaiah chapter 28, verses 1 to 22 today. Um, So I'll just give you an opportunity to turn to that if you want to. Yeah, it's just up there. Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards. To the fading flower, his glorious beauty. Set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. See the Lord has, uh, see the Lord has one um, who is powerful and strong, like a hailstorm and, the destructive wind, and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour. He will throw it forcefully to the ground. That wreath, the pride of, Ephraim, of Ephraim's drunkards, will be trampled underfoot. That fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, will be like figs ripe before harvest. As soon as people see them and take them in hand, they swallow them. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. And these, also, um, and these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are covered with vomit and there is not a spot without filth. Who is he trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? The, chil- the children weaned from their milk to those just taken from the breast. For it is, do not uh, do this, do that. A rule for this, a rule for that. A little here, a little there. Very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to his people to whom he said, this is the resting place, let the weary rest, and this is the place of repose. But they would not listen. So then the word of the Lord to them will become do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there. So that as they go, uh, they will fall backward. They will be injured and snared and captured. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death. With the realm of the dead, we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps sweeps by, it cannot touch us. For we have made a lie, um, so for we have made a lie our refuge, and falsehood our hiding place. So this is what the sovereign Lord says: See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away. Morning after morning, by day and by night, it will sweep through. The understanding of this message will, uh, bring sheer ter- um, will bring sheer terror. The bed is too short to stretch out on, the blanket too narrow to wrap around you. 
the Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rouse himself as in the valley of Gibeon to do his work, his strange work, and perform his task, his alien task. Now stop your mocking, or your chains will become heavier. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, has told me of the destruction decreed against the whole land. Here ends the reading. Good evening, everyone. My name is John Forsyth, the vicar or senior minister here at St Jude, and it's my great privilege to open God's word with you this evening uh, as we continue our series through the amazing prophecy of Isaiah. I cannot imagine any condition which would cause a ship to founder. I cannot conceive of any vital disaster happening to this vessel. Modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that. That was not the captain of the Evergreen. That was the captain, Edward Smith, who was the captain of the Titanic. See, who or what you put your trust in matters, and it matters deeply. And there are lots of both positive and negative things that we tend to put our faith or our trust or seek as our refuge. Uh, some of them are positive. We might look to the fact that we are good, look to our morality as our refuge, our place of security. We might look to the fact that we go to uni church and stay awake as our, yes, thank you, as our point of refuge. One person's awake, uh, our point of refuge, our point of security. In other words, you look to your religion. You might look to the fact that you go to university and study. Look to your marks and achievement and knowledge and potential employment as the reason for your stability and refuge. But also sometimes our negative thoughts can kind of give us an inkling into what we are truly trusting. You could maybe think that God will never forgive you for what you've done, in which case you are trusting your level of guilt. You might feel that you just don't feel close to God, in which case you are looking at your emotions. Or you maybe you just don't feel worthy. You can look and trust in your self-esteem. Who or what we trust in is crucially and vitally important because it actually reveals the nature of our heart. Now, as we are continuing our series through the book of Isaiah, we've seen that Isaiah has been called to prophesy, that is, to call uh, upon the nation of Judah, uh, God's judgment, but also a message of hope. And what has happened to God's people? Well, the God's people have been split into two kingdoms, it's somewhat confusing because the northern kingdom is sometimes called Israel and sometimes all of God's people are called Israel, but in this context, the northern kingdom are called Israel and the southern kingdom are called Judah. And it's to this southern kingdom that Isaiah has been called by God to prophesy, to warn Judah and particularly Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judah, to turn back to God. Now, one of the other big issues happening at this time is that there is this huge superpower called Assyria. And in the nature of superpowers, they are looking to increase their influence and control and, uh, and, who, they look, and who they control. And so these tiny little kingdoms of Israel and Judah are deeply under threat. 
Their livelihood is at stake. What chance do these two little kingdoms have of standing up against this superpower, Assyria? And so in the background sits this question, who will God's people trust when things are difficult? When the future looks extremely uncertain? And what we see is sadly that both kingdoms, rather than trusting God, turn and trust something else. And in chapter 28, we have a rare moment where where Isaiah prophesies both against the northern kingdom, Isaiah, and against the southern kingdom for whom they trust. And what's very interesting is they have different things that they trust. Firstly, we see Ephraim is mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 28. Now, the word Ephraim is used there. Once again, it's slightly confusing. Ephraim was the largest tribe in Israel. And so it's kind of like shorthand for saying the northern kingdom Israel. So when you hear Ephraim, think Israel, think the northern kingdom. Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. Now, just notice there, there's a city mentioned. That's the city of Samaria, which is the capital city of Ephraim. So he's talking about this capital city. And notice, too, he uses this idea, this metaphor, this image of a wreath. And that's a very, very clever use of words by Isaiah because that word wreath describes three things about this city. Firstly, it describes its beauty. Uh, Samaria was a, a city that sat on a low hill that was surrounded by fertile valleys filled with vineyards and, and flowers, and it was, it was fertile. And so that, that kind of ring of, of, of beauty around the city is a bit like a wreath. And secondly, it describes the culture of the city of Samaria. You see, you would wear a wreath uh, in Israel's day to party. It was kind of like the party hat that you wear at Christmas time. Uh, And so what we see here is a city that is celebrating its decadence and its prosperity. In other words, it's trusting that in the face of this superpower, Assyria. It trusts its own prosperity. It's a crown of pride, It's a crown of boasting and confidence in its own abilities. And that word pride, you notice, gets repeated a few times. It's it's this idea of being slightly smug, slightly getting a big head about who you are. Once again, that's quoted, uh, that that idea of pride is mentioned twice in verse 1, and then again in verse 3. We're not afraid of these Assyrians. There's no concept of danger here. We live in Samaria, the most livable city in the Near East, right? Five years in a row. We've got the laneways, we've got the coffee, got no COVID. It's it's the perfect place to live. We're here to party. There is no danger. And to make things worse, the the nation's rulers are, are, are so involved that they're basically drunk They're so obsessed with their own enjoyment, they have no care at all for the people that who've been given to them to care for. So it describes the beauty of the place, but also the culture of the place. 
Thirdly, notice too that it also describes the coming judgment upon this city. Yes, it's a beautiful floral wreath, but notice it is fading. It's fading. It's wilting. The pride of Ephraim is is destined to fade and be judged by God. And because they're heavy wine drinkers, uh, Isaiah kind of likens them to a flourishing vineyard. But we read in verse 2 that there is a hailstorm approaching. That's a symbol of the Assyrian uh, invasion who is about to come and destroy this vineyard. And enemy soldiers will come and they'll trample the grapes underfoot and steal the harvest. And what's the result? Well, we have the result there in verse 3. That wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, will be trampled underfoot. Now, I remember uh, when I was a kid, we used to go on holidays uh, to the beach, something you could do with no planning. You could just go. You'd know you could get there. There were no border restrictions. It was great. Uh, And we went went to our favourite beach. And normally it was really, really busy. But this morning, beautiful day, nobody in the water. We thought, fantastic. Normally you're fighting bills. We got out the back, had a bit of a swim. And we noticed, secondly, that there was a pod of dolphins. This was so exciting. And people at the beach were waving to us saying, hey, look, there are dolphins. And we were waving back saying, yes, we know they are dolphins. You're picking up where this story is going. (laughs) What we didn't realize was they weren't waving at us to tell us that they were dolphins. They were waving at us to tell us that they were sharks. And that there was a body of a decomposing whale nearby. And that's why the sharks were there. And that's why nobody else was in the water. In other words, we had no concept that we were in any danger. We were so caught up in our own enjoyment, the beauty of life. We had no concept that our very lives are in danger. See, friends, here is the danger of pride and of smugness, of self-importance and prosperity. Ephraim, Israel, does not understand just how much trouble they are in. They have such a good life, they see no need for a saviour. And friends, it can be the same with us. We can have such blessings and such joy that we can fail to realise that we need a saviour. Wealth and prosperity can distract us. Jesus himself speaks of a parable of A camel going through the eye of a needle, being easier than a rich person entering God's kingdom. And that's a challenge for us in an affluent and prosperous country. You see, in 722 BC, the Assyrians attacked Samaria and took its people into captivity. But nonetheless, there was still hope. For those few remaining faithful to God would not be forsaken. Because God promised that he would actually be their true crown, their their true wreath. Have a look at verses 5 and 6. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. 
See, Isaiah is reminding us here that we don't boast in our own prosperity, our own crown, our own wreath, but we boast in God, the glorious one, whose spirit is justice and who sits in judgment and is a source of strength. So the northern kingdom, Ephraim and Israel, rather than trusting God, they're trusting themselves and their own prosperity but it ends terribly. Well, what about the southern kingdom? What about Judah? Well, we have that in the very next section. They, true, need an answer to the question of what to do with Assyria. Now, they don't trust in their own prosperity. They've got a different plan. They will trust in the power of another nation. By the way, things are not good in Judah either, by the way. Have a look at these verses. There's a massive crisis in their leadership. Firstly, the leaders are drunk and incompetent in verses 7 and 8. Rather than looking and leading God's people, they are literally, in the words of our premier, getting on the beers. Look at verse 7. I've never seen beer mentioned in one verse as much. This is the beer verse in scriptures. (laughs) And these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. Great word, isn't it? Befuddled with wine. And they reel from beer. They're so obsessed with their own enjoyment. They've failed in their responsibilities. And they've failed to care for the people. They become incompetent, they're so drunk. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. They're meant to bring justice and speak God's word, but instead... They're drunk and meandering and muttering. And And then it gets to verse 8. You see, the table, the idea of a table in the Old Testament is meant to be a sign of hospitality and a sign of blessing and a sign of community gathering, something that you look forward to, as we are looking forward to dinner tonight after church, right? Have a look at this. All the tables are covered with vomit. There is not a spot without filth. Can you imagine, you know, Sam invites you over, Sam is the, the church minister, he invites you over for dinner, and because he's a great cook, and you turn up, but the table is covered with vomit, that is dripping off the sides onto the floor, right? And the smell, it, it, it's a vile picture, isn't it? These are leaders that we're meant to recoil from. It's it's disgusting. And secondly, these leaders have a complete disregard for God's word. In verses 9 and 10. They're kind of upset with Isaiah because Isaiah keeps coming back saying, look, you need to repent, you need to trust God, you need to... But we've heard this a thousand times. Look, verse 9, look, who is he trying to teach, they say? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk, to those just taken from the breast. In other words, look, Isaiah, your message is for babies. We are mature adults, but your message, it's really, it's not for us. It's, it's far too simple. We are far too mature. You, you can hear the arrogance in these leaders. Verse 10 For it is this, do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there, 
Um, by the way, in the original language, in Hebrew, it, it really is, it's just baby talk. It's like, that, that's literally what it says in the Hebrew. Look it up. Blah, 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 blah. Is that, that's what they think of God's word. And so Isaiah responds in verse 11. If you're going to refuse to listen to God's word, if you think it's just blah, 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 baby talk, well, let me give you a, a message. Very well then, he says in verse 11, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to his people. To whom he said, this is a resting place. Let the weary rest and this is a place of repose. But they would not listen. Do you see what Isaiah is saying? He's saying, look, God has promised you peace and rest. But you've refused, uh, refused to listen to these clear and simple words. So clear that a baby can understand them. And so, God instead will use a different language, a different tongue, one that you will not understand, the foreign tongue of the invader, the foreign tongue of the Assyrian and Babylonian armies. God will send them to judge you because you do not listen to this simple message. Verse 13. So then, the word of the Lord to them will become, do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there, so that as they go, they will fall backwards and they'll be injured and snared and captured. There's the warning. Take God's word seriously, says Isaiah. But it gets worse. The leaders fail to trust God. See, the leaders know they're not strong enough to stand against this superpower, Assyria. And to be conquered by Assyria means for Judah, it means death and it means destruction. It means exile and it means alienation. It means loss of identity and it means loss of culture. And so what do Israel, so what do Judah's leaders do? Well, they make an alliance with Egypt. See, when you've got a bully harassing you, you make friends with another bully, right? That's, that's wise. That's sensible. Or is it? See, what's happening here is Judah are saying that they trust Egypt as their refuge and as their saviour. That's who they turn to when times are tough. But God instead sees this as a rebellion against him. Look at, look at the, just how strong the language is in verse 15. You boast, we have entered a covenant, not to life, with, what's that word? Death. A covenant with death. With the realm of the dead, we have made an agreement. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us. For we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. They're strong words from Isaiah. 
See, what Isaiah is teaching the people of Jerusalem and what he is teaching us is that our hearts long for a place of security and refuge. Each and every one of us, just like the people of Jerusalem. And the reality is that if God is not your refuge and the saviour of your life, you will turn to something else. You could turn to a source of power and influence, as uh, Judah did, turning to Egypt. But you can also turn to something else. You could turn to a noble cause. You could turn to financial independence. You could turn to your university degree, your career, your intelligence, romance, marriage, health. It could even be your ministry that you turn to as your place of refuge and security. Now, by the way, friends, these are actually good things. But the problem is, it is when you say, you are my refuge. You are my hiding place. You are my security. You are my identity. You are my hope. God's words tells us blankly here, you have entered then into a covenant not with life but with death. When they become the thing you bank your life on, you have backed the wrong horse. And that word death is very strong because Isaiah wants us to be, without any doubt, they can't save us. They will not give us life. And in fact, like Judah, we actually sit under God's judgment because we've walked away from trusting God. See, the only way to tell that your refuge, that you have a safe, secure hiding place, it's not when things are going well, it's when things are going badly, when there's trouble. It's when the thing you're relying on gets put to the test. You see, you only know that a parachute works when you jump out of the plane. You could try it on the ground, pull the ripcord. I guess it worked. But at 22,000 feet, you pull the ripcord. That's when you know if your refuge works. And so what happens when our human refuges fail us? when you lose that job, when you fail your exams, when you lose your financial independence, when the doctor tells you the news that you've been dreading to hear. That's when you realise that your refuge is woefully inadequate. That's when we realise we've entered into a covenant with death. It promises so much, but it delivers nothing. There's an almost humorous image of this in verse 20. The bed is too short to stretch out on, the blanket too narrow to wrap around you. That's a human refuge. <laughs> Neither covers the facts nor meets the needs of our life. And friends, I think so many of our problems come from this. And it doesn't matter if you are a strong Christian or a weak Christian or, or not a Christian at all. So often the reason we feel anger uh, and guilt uh, and fear and boredom and anxiety is because we rely on other things 
other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And they cannot, cannot bear that burden. They cannot be a place of security. For far too often we make a lie a refuge and a falsehood our hiding place. So let me make this real and personal. What is your refuge and your hiding place? What do you turn to to give your life security and purpose and safety? Or to put it another way, what is functioning more than Jesus as your saviour? It's an uncomfortable question because it cuts to the depths of our heart and it reveals what we are truly trusting in. So what's the solution? Where can we go? What what can we trust in for genuine security and refuge and life? Well, if you want the answer, look at the beautiful promises in verses 16 and 17. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion. Zion's just another word for Jerusalem. It's a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. Now, in Isaiah's day, just as in ours, it was really common for a foundation stone, a precious cornerstone, the kind of first block that defines the building, to have an inscription on it that would declare the purpose of the building. And in fact, St. Jude's has a number of foundation stones for the different parts of the building. And so my challenge for you, not now, later on, to see if you can find, there's at least three that I've noticed that have an inscription on them. But listen to the inscription on this stone. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. That's the promise on this stone. The one who relies on this stone will never be stricken with panic. In other words, it will be a true refuge. It will be a proper and safe hiding place. A place you can trust in, come what may. Whatever you face, this is the place of safety, says Isaiah. What's special about this cornerstone, this place of safety and refuge? Well, it's about the quality of the work and the materials. See, a sure foundation must be constructed with the best materials and with accurate tools to make sure it's neat and level. Verse 17. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Hail will sweep over your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. The implication being that neither of those things will affect this place of refuge. And what Isaiah is doing here, he is prophesying that great day of righteousness that the Christ, the Messiah, God's promised king will usher in. A true place of safety for God's people. 
And of course, this precious cornerstone is ultimately the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our precious cornerstone. And in fact, there's a, there's a really interesting parallel, I think, between this cornerstone and both uh, Ephraim uh, and uh, Judah. See, Jesus is our precious cornerstone, not because he wears a wreath of glory and prosperity and self, self-worth. No, he wears a crown of thorns. Not pride in prosperity, but in humility and service. And he is our refuge and hiding place, not just because he's more powerful than Egypt, which he is, by the way, but because instead he actually gave up that power and he took our place and he died our death to release us from our covenant with death, which is a simple shorthand for saying sin. The penalty for sin is death. But Christ's death releases us from that covenant. See, friends, the safest ground, the safest ground, the safest ground is at the foot of the cross. May that be your pride and your glory. May that be your refuge And may that be your hiding place. As we are told in 1 Peter 2, come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who puts his trust in him will never be put to shame. Amen.